Scripture this morning is in Matthew. We're finishing up Matthew 23, really. We are done with Matthew 23, but we're going to start reading there. Matthew 23, verse 37, through chapter 24, verse 3. And in the Pew Bible, this is page 829. Matthew 23, 37, this is the word of our Lord. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together? As a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to him to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, as we begin to open your word and to, to look to a passage that few of us really understand, pray that you would give us understanding. Help us to read your word wisely, to read it as you have intended it to be read, to hear it as you intended it to be heard, and to understand it in such a way, Lord, that you build us up in Christ. You point us forward to Christ's return. And show us how to live now as we wait. Lord, I know you'll do these things by your spirit, so we ask you to do them. Give us understanding in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for the next um, four weeks, we as a church will, will be examining one of the more difficult chapters of Matthew's gospel. Really one of the more difficult chapters of the Bible. And the difficulty with Matthew chapter 24 is not in the challenges that Jesus gives us. This isn't one of those passages where Jesus says, cut off your hand in order to avoid sin or pluck out your eye. He doesn't tell us to take up our cross here. He doesn't say he's going to be dividing families here. It's, it's not that what he says in Matthew 24 is, is countercultural. It's not hard to receive. It's just hard to understand. And it's not hard to understand because the language is hard, and it's not that the words are big or that these are hard concepts to, to grasp. It's not the theology. What I have found difficult is, and as I've studied Matthew 24 and really Matthew 25 as well over the last several months, knowing that this chapter was looming over me, uh, what, what I found was that I just don't know the Old Testament that well. This, this is what we do know. From, from at least Matthew 21 onward, Matthew has been showing us how Jesus has been fulfilling this, this role of a, of a long-awaited, promised prophet. That's who Messiah was supposed to be, the, the priestly prophet king. 
He has been showing us in, in, in multiple ways that, that he really is the long-awaited prophet. And perhaps more than anywhere else that we've seen so far in Matthew's gospel, Jesus, in Matthew 24, talks like a prophet. And reading and understanding prophets is not a strong suit for most of us. It's not for me. Think, think about the way that, that we understand things. Think about some of our most significant cultural influences. Take the news, for instance. How does a news story come to us? Well, there's a major headline that grabs our attention, and then there are facts in plain English, or there used to be facts given to us in plain English, English and, those, and those plain facts help us to understand what's going on. So, for instance, this isn't happening right now, but if you hear on the news there's a, a fire in the Cleveland National Forest, you would hear something like there are 300 acres burning, it's 0% contained, there are high winds coming from the east, and we all know what all those things mean because it's in plain English. We understand all of that very clearly. And so we know when they say, it's close to your neighborhood now, it's time to evacuate, we know, we know what to do, we leave time to go. That's how we're accustomed to hearing about these things. Jesus' disciples were much more accustomed to hearing prophecy. They were immersed in the Old Testament, which has got a lot of prophecy in it. So they, they knew Genesis all the way to the prophets, and they'd been hearing these things from infancy onward. So here's the challenge. In order for us to rightly understand Matthew 24, the way that the disciples would have understood Matthew 24 when it was given to them, we have to sort of put ourselves in their, in their place. We have to think like them. We have to listen like them. This was meant to be read as biblical prophecy. So we have to read it as a biblical prophecy. So this morning, knowing that that's my weak spot and that's a weak area for many of us, this is going to be kind of an unusual sermon. All right, because we're not really going to get that far into Matthew 24, which is what's coming for the next few weeks. But what we're going to do today is do a little crash course. All right, we're going to learn how to read prophecy. I'm going to give us some reading comprehension tools so that when we get more into Matthew 24 next week, we'll know how to read it. We'll know how to understand it. We'll get a little bit, you know, we'll go as far as we read today. But that part's not hard. So, so uh, there's four big concepts that, that we need to remember when we're approaching prophecy, any prophecy in Scripture. Here's those four concepts. The first, when you're approaching any prophecy, you need to understand that there are two authors. Not just one author, two authors. Sometimes more. Two authors to every prophecy. The second is that those authors nearly always use symbolic language. The third is that there are often, not always, but there are often two fulfillments of prophecies. Sometimes there are more than two fulfillments of prophecies. The fourth is that prophecies, as a part of God's word, are usually interwoven with the rest of God's word, the rest of Scripture. Right? Those are the four things. So biblical pro prophecy includes or involves two authors, 
often writing in colorful, symbolic language, and it usually involves multiple fulfillments that are interwoven with the rest of Scripture. If this sounds like, oh, did, what seminary class did we just sign up for? It's, it actually is kind of what it's going to be like today. Um, I know I've gotten that complaint before. Today it's legitimate. All right. So and the, the issue is we have to learn how to read. We've got to learn how to read prophecy if we're going to read Matthew 24 rightly instead of jumping to some applications or trying to date when Jesus is coming back. We need to understand what Jesus is saying first. So that this is, this is a, a prerequisite to your Matthew 24 sermons. Now, now what I just told you, those, those four concepts, it's a broad stroke, isn't it? There, there are certainly some exceptions to these, these rules. There's a lot more we could say about prophecy. But in general, we need to get used to all of these characteristics of prophecy. All right, so whether we're reading Ezekiel, like we did earlier, or Matthew 24, or whether we're reading Revelation, we need to understand all of these things. There's two authors, there's symbolic language, there's more than one fulfillment. It's woven in with the rest of Scripture. As a test case for this, what we're going to do today is look at Isaiah 13. And this will become relevant later on in this series. You'll see why I've chosen Isaiah 13 as our case study for how to read prophecy. But go ahead and, and turn to Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13. I don't know the page number, but it's um, after the Psalms. So go, go to the midway point in your Bible and turn right a little bit. It's a big book, so it's one that's easier to find. Isaiah chapter 13. And I'm going to read this, this chapter for us. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw. On a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble. And every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant, and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold, and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And like a hunted gazelle, or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people, 
and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through, and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Behold, I'm stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there. And their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will dwell. And their wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers. And jackals in the pleasant palaces. Its time is close at hand. And its days will not be prolonged. That's a prophecy, isn't it? Now, first of all, how do we know that this is prophecy? Well, look at verse 1. Go back to verse 1. Isaiah calls this an oracle. That's a clue. It's something he saw. It's a vision. So even if, if we're opening our Bibles for the first time ever, we've never heard of Isaiah, we didn't know Isaiah was a prophet, the way that this chapter is introduced is a good clue that we need to read it like a prophecy. We also are told here that this is an oracle concerning Babylon. Babylon was one of the kingdoms that Judah, the, the southern kingdom of, of Israel, that was tempted to trust when they shouldn't have. So uh, the Assyrians were, were coming closer to Judah. They were threatening Judah. And Judah thought, well, maybe Babylon will save us. And that trust was misplaced. Not only should Judah have trusted in the Lord instead of foreign nations, what we soon find as we read the Bible, Babylon would eventually conquer Jerusalem. So here is Isaiah. He's predicting the future fall of Babylon. It hasn't happened yet. It's in the future. And the message to God's people here is Babylon is not the strong and mighty defender that you hoped it would be. Only God can defend you. God is sovereign over the nations. God is sovereign even over wicked Babylon. Now, that's sort of the, the intro that we have here. Let, let's look at our marks of prophecy. Let's go through each of these four marks of prophecies, characteristics of prophecy as we examine Isaiah 13. Who wrote Isaiah? Isaiah did. Right? Isaiah says it was written by him. He says in verse 1, he's the one who saw these things. Isaiah saw these things. He's the one writing them down. But who revealed this to Isaiah? God did. And what is the manner in which Isaiah wrote these things? Well, Peter tells us later on in 2 Peter. Peter tells us no prophecy, and this is a prophecy, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. This wasn't Isaiah's idea. But men spoke, Isaiah spoke, from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1.21. So Isaiah is writing, Isaiah is using his own words, his personality is coming through, his own touch is coming through in his writing, and yet he's being carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
So anything that Isaiah says in the book of Isaiah is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is approved. It's got the stamp of approval of the Holy Spirit. Nothing that Isaiah has written is outside of the bounds of what God instructed Isaiah to write down. So there's two authors. It's our first characteristic. There's two authors to Isaiah 13. And that is the case for all of Scripture. But we need to especially remember that as we approach prophecy, any prophecy. Because the human author is writing things that he doesn't fully understand. He's writing from his own perspective. He's writing from his own limited knowledge. And at the same time, the divine author is writing with absolute and complete understanding of what he's saying. He knows the future. He knows how his words will be used and understood. And he reveals to his people exactly what we need to know when we need to know it. Secondly, you probably noticed as we were reading Isaiah 13 that it's very colorful. Very, uses, Isaiah uses very imaginative language. It's dramatic. You can imagine what he's saying in your mind's eye. You can see it. You can almost feel it. Prophets, especially when they're writing about things that are far in the future, they use images to convey what they're saying. When you hear about an infant being dashed against the rocks, you feel that, don't you? That's how prophets write. And that makes sense because prophecies are based on a vision. Isaiah is using words to describe things that he is seeing, things that he's actually experiencing. And the best way he can convey his vision is to use these powerful images that allow us to feel emotionally what Isaiah is saying is seeing. So look, look at verse 5, Isaiah 13, 5. We're going to stick here in chapter 13 for a moment. He's describing an army that is going to destroy Babylon. Remember the oracle is about Babylon. It says this army is coming to destroy Babylon, and Isaiah says, they're from the end of the heavens. The end of the heavens. Now, is this to be taken literalistically? Or is this figurative language? The ends of the hedge. If we take that literalistically, that means the edge of the universe. Right? So, so we would have to say that this army coming to Babylon is, is some alien invaders from, from, from outside of, of our solar system. That's not what he means. Right? We know that's not what Isaiah means because later on in verse 17, what does he say? Who is the Lord stirring up to attack Babylon? The Medes. Well, they're, they're not in, on Mars. They're, they're between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. They're on Earth. And it's really not that far away from Babylon. Look at verse 7. When Babylon falls, Isaiah says, the Destruction will be so great that all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. Now will every human heart melt? Think of that image, like butter left out in the, in the sunshine. Is that what happens? Is that what will happen or what did happen when the Medes, the army of the Medes, invaded Babylon? Probably not. 
Probably wasn't quite like that. This is symbolic language. This is prophecy. The heart is the stand-in for the will. And a melting will describes a, a loss of hope. You've given up. So when your heart melts, it's like you've given up the will to fight. And the word every, every heart, probably doesn't mean that every single human heart in the entire world melted or gave up hope when Babylon was invaded. So at that same time, we have Mayans living in in what is now Mexico. They probably were not very affected by the fall of Babylon. And yet the author says every human heart will melt. Look at the imagery in verse 10. Again, we're looking at all the symbolic imagery here, trying to, to grasp how do we read and understand chapters like this. Look at verse 10. The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. Now we know historically as a fact that Babylon fell to the Medes in 539 BC. This happened. And the sun and the moon and the stars did not stop shining. But that's not what Isaiah expected to happen. Neither did the people who were reading this prophecy. They understood what this meant. The fall of such a great kingdom as Babylon, especially the people who were constantly under the threat of Babylon, their fall was so catastrophic, it was so massive a historical event, that it is as if the sun and the moon and the stars were also affected by it. And this is not as foreign to us as we would think. On, on, on the night before the United Kingdom entered into the First World War, the British Foreign Secretary, Edward Gray, said, the lamps are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. Did anybody think that he actually meant that every lamp in Europe was going out and would not be lit again? In their lifetime? He he didn't mean that, did he? No, everybody knows what he's talking about. This is the time of great darkness. There's, There's more of this symbolic language in Isaiah 13. Isaiah talks about the heavens trembling, the earth being shaken out of its place. And here's what I want you to understand. When you read prophecy... The stars don't have to shake in order for this to be true. That the earth's magnetic field doesn't have to reverse. The earth doesn't have to be taken out of orbit in order for Isaiah 13 to be true. The language is communicating the gravity of the events. Okay? So I think you get the picture. There's lots of images. There's lots of symbols that are being used. Sometimes it's hyperbolic. But it... But the idea is that the the prophet wants to give the reader just how strong a sense of how devastating the fall of Babylon would be. So even if some of those more specific prophecies like hyenas are crying in the towers or there's jackals in the palaces, even if that never actually happened, the image being portrayed is that this city would be absolutely, totally destroyed and abandoned. No people would live there. That's the idea. 
That's, that's the point. And the people hearing these prophecies would have understood that and said, yes, God's word is true. God's word is 100% reliable. We can trust God's word. The prophets were not writing like journalists. They were communicating the words of God to God's people with the intent of, of spurring them to repent of sin and trust in God and God's promises and to look forward to God's kingdom. That's the point of prophecies. The third mark I told you about was this multiple fulfillment issue. All right, so when we read prophecies, we need to understand that there's going to be one fulfillment that is near to that prophecy and a fulfillment far in the future of that prophecy. A, a partial fulfillment and a final or complete fulfillment. So a famous example of this, you might be familiar with this one, is in Isaiah chapter 7. So in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah, the prophet, is trying to convince the king, King Ahaz, that he can trust in the Lord to protect Judah. He really can't trust him. But Ahaz doesn't believe Isaiah and he doesn't believe the Lord. And Isaiah says, okay, Ahaz, if you don't believe me, how about this? How about the Lord will give you a sign so that you know you can trust him? And he says in Isaiah 7.14, look at Isaiah 7.14. You might know this one. Therefore, this is Isaiah, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. There it is. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, what do we think of when we hear this? Christmas, right? This is, this is Christmas. Jesus. But listen, that Isaiah 7 promise had a context. And its context and its immediate fulfillment were meant not for us, but for Ahaz, then, as a sign. A sign is really no good if you can't see it, is it? So the passage goes on. Isaiah 7, 15, he shall eat curds. This is that, that son, this Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, that means before he grows up, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So, so what is Isaiah doing? He's, he's using these time markers. He's telling King Ahaz about history, very near history, within the next decade, history will unfold as this little boy grows up. And, and the immediate fulfillment, the near fulfillment of that prophecy will be assigned to Ahaz. And it'll be a sign that, that, that God's word is trustworthy. Okay? So was there an immediate, was there a near fulfillment of this prophecy? Yes, there was. There was an actual near fulfillment of this prophecy. And it came in the form, he came in the form of Isaiah's own son. So Isaiah was married to a woman who was a young woman. She, she was not a virgin. She was a young woman. That, that word that, that Isaiah uses for virgin can mean young woman or virgin. Okay, so same word, both, both meanings. So Isaiah's wife had a baby. And as the boy grew, his growing up matched the fulfillment of these prophecies. And that boy's existence and the prophecy's reliability proved that God was faithful. It proved that God was with Judah, 
So the boy could in one sense be called Emmanuel, God with us, because he was a sign that God was with them. But we know that there is a far fulfillment of this promise, don't we? Jesus was the actual embodiment of God with us, Emmanuel. And he was born miraculously to an actual virgin, not just a young woman. So there was one prophecy, and there were two fulfillments. But the later fulfillment was more significant. It was more complete. You see how that works? Okay, so Isaiah 13 also fits this pattern. This prophecy was written sometime around 700 B.C., and this prophecy predicts the fall of Babylon. It's an oracle concerning Babylon. The Medes are supposed to come into Babylon. And what happened? Well, 539 B.C. comes around. The Medes conquered Babylon. Just as Isaiah prophesied. We call that a near fulfillment of the prophecy. It really happened. It really took place. The prophecy was accurate. But that language that Isaiah was using sounded bigger than that, didn't it? Look again at the language that he uses to describe what's taking place. He calls that day the day of the Lord. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord, what's that? That's judgment day. That day hasn't happened yet, has it? This isn't heaven. And the way that this is written, you see this universal language, not just localized language. On that day, we saw this earlier, all hands, every heart will be affected. In verse 11, the world is punished for its evil. I thought this was Babylon's judgment. But the world is punished for its evil. While there was an initial and partial fulfillment of Isaiah 13, the way that this prophecy is written, and because it is prophecy, we should understand that there is probably a final fulfillment that will take place. And when you read Revelation 18, you find out that there is indeed a future destruction of a place called Babylon. All right, so we have a near fulfillment, 539 B.C., the destruction of Babylon, exactly as Isaiah said it would happen, absolutely destroyed, abandoned. No one lives in that place even to this day. Far fulfillment, sometime in the future, Babylon will be destroyed again. And yet, it's not the city of Babylon, but the spirit of Babylon, the rebellious spirit of Babylon that is finally eliminated from, from the world. And that connects us to this last mark that we see regarding prophecies. The way that prophecies are often weaving together various scriptures. The whole Bible, you guys know this, we've, we've talked about this several times. The whole Bible is one story. It is a story filled with God's promises and the fulfillment of God's promises. It is filled with his glory. It is filled with his judgment. It is filled with his redemption and his faithfulness, there are good guys and bad guys. And so it makes sense that different parts of the story are echoed throughout the story as we go throughout history. So Babylon, for instance, we've heard of Babylon before. It's that city that rep represents 
humanity's rebellion against God. The origin of Babylon goes way back to Genesis chapter 11, way, way back. Humanity had built up a city to make a name for themselves rather than God, and God destroyed the city. And he scattered the people around, and the name of that place was Babylon. And then we see that place come up again, or at least that name, and it's woven all throughout Israel's story, all throughout the rest of the Bible, all the way to the end. Genesis to Revelation both have Babylons in them. So it, so it makes sense that when Isaiah talks about the destruction of this city, it makes sense that he would not just use localized language, he would use cosmic language. There's something about the rebellious, idolatrous spirit of Babylon leading people away from God that is a part of the larger storyline of Scripture. And at the same time, while that big language, that cosmic stuff is true, in the 6 and 700s BC, this was a very real place, a very real kingdom. There were kings, real kings there, real armies there, real people there, real sin. And that place was destroyed. So, so Isaiah, writing Isaiah 13, he's drawing in Genesis for us. He's weaving together scripture when he talks about Babylon. And John, in Revelation, he's echoing Isaiah when he talks about Babylon. Prophecies bring the larger storyline of Scripture together. So there's 66 books of the Bible, multiple, multiple, multiple human authors throughout the millennia. The Holy Spirit is there the entire time. He is the one divine author who leads each one of these men as they're pointing to Christ throughout Scripture. And all of that, everything I just said about Isaiah 13, is true about Matthew 24. That's how we read Matthew chapter 24. We've got multiple authors. We have Jesus there speaking to Matthew. He's one of the disciples. He's listening to what Jesus says. We have the Spirit of God moving Matthew along as he writes these things. And we have Matthew writing. All three are collaborating in a way to make Scripture of Jesus' prophecies. And we'll see as we study Matthew 24, there is lots of symbolic language used, just like Isaiah 13. There are multiple fulfillments expected. That's key. All right, so if you're wondering how does Dustin interpret Matthew 24, we're going to see multiple fulfillments. And, and what is written for us in Matthew 24 weaves together older prophecies from the Old Testament and older themes from the Old Testament as we, as we read the scriptures. So as you, I want to encourage you this week to read Matthew chapter 24, okay? And, and as you read it, I want you to become familiar with, with the passage. Read it as prophecy, though. All right, don't read it as a news article. Read it as prophecy, and that means you're going to read it with these characteristics in mind. So when you get to something confusing, knowing that this is weaving together Scripture, look at the cross-references in your Bible and look them up. And, and when you get to those cross-references, don't just read that verse. Read the entire chapter of, of whatever it is in the Old Testament. If you, if you get to something that sounds like Old Testament, it probably is. Probably is. So, so look it up. 
And one of the ways that you can do this, there are several ways. I use the ESV app, the, the English Standard Version Bible. I have the app, it's free on my phone, and there's a search function there. So you get to a word like moon. Just look up moon. And it's going to give you a list of all those references in the Old Testament of the word moon. Read them. And try to figure out, is Jesus referencing this? Is, he, is it something else? If you need to use something else, you can use a Bible Gateway, Blue Letter Bible. If you have a Bible software program, use those. Um, search for these word pictures that Jesus uses and read those references from the Old Testament. So, so as you read Matthew 24 this week on your own, read it with a whole Bible mindset. Okay. With all that in mind, what we're going to do, just for the next few minutes, we're not going to get very far, um, that's your introductory to how to read prophecy. So we're going to start, because we have several weeks to get to here. Uh, we're going to spend a few minutes just barely getting into the text, and we're going to begin with the, the end of chapter 23. All right, so the last time we were in Matthew's gospel, we were in chapter 23. We did the whole thing. And we were hearing from Jesus this last word of condemnation against Jerusalem and the leaders of Judaism in that day. And we really keyed in at the end there in chapter 23 on verse 38. Remember that? Jesus says to the city, see your house is left to you desolate. Jesus is leaving Jerusalem. And he's making a point of saying he's leaving Jerusalem's house. He's talking about the temple, right? What had formerly been known as God's house. Jesus says it's your house now. God is leaving. Think about it. Jesus, the one who, who has revealed himself to be God. That's what we've seen all the way up to Matthew 24. He's revealing himself to be God. He's standing at the temple grounds, and he says he's leaving the temple, and it will be empty. It will be desolate. It will be empty of the presence of God. The very center of Judaism will no longer be the center of Judaism. It's being abandoned by God. It's almost like God is leaving the religion to, to their hearts. It's what it feels like. This has happened before in redemptive history. It's not the first time God left the temple. When, when God told Jeremiah that he was leaving the temple, in Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 7, he said, I have forsaken my house. He calls it my house there. I've abandoned my heritage I've given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. He's talking about giving Israel up to, to his enemies. And we, and we read in Ezekiel, this time when the Spirit of God left the temple. We read from Ezekiel 10. Let me show you what Ezekiel 11 says. Ezekiel eleven twenty three. the prophet says, The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city. So we're in Jerusalem. It's left the temple. The glory of the Lord goes up from the midst of Jerusalem, the midst of the city, and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Now, this is kind of cool, right? So you want to see prophecies, you want to see scripture weaving itself together? What is the mountain that is on the east side of Jerusalem? It's the Mount of Olives. So where did Jesus, the glory of God incarnate, go when he left the temple with his disciples? Mount of Olives. Did you catch that in our reading? Jesus is lamenting over the city, chapter 23. He says God is leaving, and then he leaves, and he goes straight to the east of the city, to the Mount of Olives. Look at 24, verse 3. He sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him. 
So, so don't, don't miss that. Even just as we're getting into the introduction to what is one of the most complex uh, predictions of the future, we're already seeing the weaving together of Scripture. When God leaves the temple in Ezekiel, his glory then stands on the Mount of Olives. When Jesus, the presence of God, leaves the temple in Matthew, he goes to the Mount of Olives. All right, so this is, this is big. Very significant event happening here. So as, as they're leaving, though, they, they're, they're leaving the temple grounds. They're headed east. On their way there, something happens that really sets the, sets the stage for how we're going to read the rest of this. Jesus leaves the temple with his disciples. Matthew says in 24, verse 1, the disciples came to, the, came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Now, this is all that Matthew says the disciples say. What are they pointing out? So you can imagine, you're, you're with them, you're walking away, you look back at the, the temple, it's enormous as you're going up the hill on the other side. Huge building. And they're just pointing it out. We don't know what they're saying. Mark tells us a little bit of what they might have been saying, or what they did say. He says that one of the disciples pointed out how wonderful the buildings were, and how big the stones were. It seems that the the authors, Matthew and Mark, want us to see that the disciples were trying to kind of remind Jesus of how important this place was. Remember, Jesus has just told him that the glory of God is leaving. He's leaving the temple. This place is going to be desolate. And the disciples are like, but look how big it is. So, Jesus, are you sure about what you said about God leaving the temple? Look at how big the stones are. Look how massive this place is. This is one of the wonders of the world. People come from a very, very long way away to see this place. Are you sure, Jesus, that God would want to leave such a nice house? And look at what Jesus says. Look at verse 2. You see all of these? Truly, I say to you, there will not be one stone here left upon another that will not be thrown down. But Jesus is adding to his prophecy here. Not only has the glory of God left the temple, the temple is going to be utterly destroyed. Not one stone will be left on another. Now, stone doesn't quite capture the heft of these massive blocks. When we hear stone, at least when I do, I, I think of a big 100-pound rock. It's just really hard to lift. Maybe a bigger boulder, size of a car. But the biggest of the temple stones... Stones, they're 44 feet long, 16 feet wide, 11 feet tall. So just think about the heft of that. And they're chiseled out of the mountain as, as these giant rectangular bricks to form the foundation of the temple. 40 feet, 44 feet long, 16 feet wide, 11 feet tall. Some of these stones weighed 600 tons. Do the math. All right, Luke, one ton, 2,000 pounds. 600 tons. That's a lot, isn't it? That's a, that's a, that's a lot of pounds. The, the smaller stones, so this, the little stones of the temple, were 15 feet long. Still pretty big. Three and a half feet wide, two and a half feet tall. That's 28 tons. That's big. It was a, a massive temple. To say, for Jesus to say, none of these stones will be on top of each other anymore would be absolutely unheard of took years and years to put these stones into place. 
10,000 workers. Not to mention the dimensions. So it's not just that there's like seven big stones. This temple was huge. 1,400 feet long, 900 feet wide, 90 feet tall. It's big. This is an enormous building. To think that the entire building would be destroyed in the way that Jesus said it would, or that it even could be destroyed. The disciples thought that the only way that's happening is if the world is ending. That's, that's, the, only, that's the only way they could imagine that, that this place would be left desolate by God. God would surely have to be returning if, if this, is, this place was going to be destroyed. In fact, when Jesus tells them that the temple is going to be destroyed, and they ask him, when? Because this is kind of a scary, this is scary news. When's this going to happen? What, what do they do? They conflate all of these things. They say, they conflate the day of the Lord's arrival, so the day of the Lord, with the destruction of the temple. Look at verse 3 again. So here they, they've left the city. They're on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately, and they say, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and end of the end of the age? Now, when will these things be? What are they asking? When is the glory of the Lord leaving the temple? When is this house going to be left desolate? When will it be that no stone is left on top of another? And what are the signs that this is about to happen? And you're coming in the end of the age. They're all one event to these guys. To the disciples... The temple being left desolate by God, the destruction of the temple, the coming of the Lord, the end of the age, that's all one, one really interesting day, right? All one event. They could not imagine a scenario where what they thought of as the dwelling place of God, think about that theologically, what's happening? This is where God dwells. It's destroyed. You don't destroy the dwelling place of God, and then the world not end in their minds. But the disciples were wrong. Because that very day, the glory of the Lord had left the temple. Jesus was with them. They saw him walk away. They witnessed that. In a mere matter of decades, that shell of a building, as big as it was, it will be destroyed. Not one stone would be left on another, exactly as Jesus predicted. And, and here we are, 2,000 years after that event, and Jesus still hasn't returned. The final judgment day has not occurred. None of those things happened on the same day. The disciples were relying on what they thought they knew of Old Testament prophecies. They knew them better than we did. And they're combining that with what Jesus had taught them thus far. And still, they were way off in how they understood the end times. They were wrong. These were men who knew the Old Testament better than we do. They knew how to read prophecies. They had many of them memorized. And yet they still, still missed the mark about how these things would unfold. 
So, so our, our takeaway from this, and this is, we're just going to end here. If these guys got it wrong, how humble should we be as we approach this text? This doesn't mean, I don't say that saying that we can't get any of it, we can't understand any of it. It doesn't mean that the Lord has nothing to show us and that this is just some great mystery that we'll never understand. What this means is that as we approach Matthew 24, we should be humble, we should be prayerful, and we should carefully study the words of our Savior knowing that he has, he's given us his spirit who has actually written these things, who will help to guide us and help us to understand them if we're willing to read other things that he's written. So, so pray for me. Here's your takeaway. Pray for me, because I still don't quite know how we're going to approach this. Pray, pray for me as I study. Pray as you read. I pray as I read Matthew 24. And, and then next week, when we come to verse 3 and following, come expectantly, okay? Come, come expecting to receive God's word and to receive instruction from our Lord, to know how to think, to know how to live as we wait for his return, okay? Let's pray.